Cineboys to Cinemen episode 28. 28. 28. Hope you're well, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Bit of a long time since our last episode. It has been, yes. Yeah, busy boys. Yeah, we've been doing literally everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah the, the time wise thrown us about of sorts, I think, actually. Um, we said we'd do like a like a reveal director deep dive spinning wheel thing that hasn't happened (laughs) um and then we did do it but we forgot to film it yeah Um, and by spinning wheel it's just taking names out of a hat which we dropped the uh yeah the amount of complexity required (laughs) i think it started as a a kind of elaborate spinning wheel game show type thing and then it went on uh to take on it's it's more simpler form yes yes it's, it's all good yeah absolutely you know you're still gonna get the gold yeah for those not following us on Instagram, what the hell are you doing? What are uh, you doing? What are you doing? Get your search bar up on Instagram. Type in Cineboys to Cinemen. With C- a two. With a two. C-I-N-E-B-O-I-S to C-I-N-E-M-E-N. That's it. That's right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Good. Correct. Well, I'm yeah. glad. Um, but uh, yeah, we were going to announce the, the results uh, in a, in spectacular fashion. Um <laughs> Um, obviously, that, that didn't happen either. So, um, for those that haven't seen it, its uh, subject this week is another directed deep dive on the Coen Brothers. Yes. Suggested to us by Dale. And Thanks, drawn Dale. out of the hat. So, thank you for that, Dale. Mm. Um, we will draw another one after recording this episode. Yes. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that'll be the subject of the next episode, but it'd be good if it's a director in which we have a few films of theirs we haven't seen. Mm. It gives us an opportunity to um, sort of, stu- you know, Study, study study those yeah. films yeah, just yeah. sit in the living room and watch them in your pants yeah yeah um, legally legally we, we'll have to purchase them legally of course oh I thought you meant the act of watching films in your pants wasn't had to justify there was some sort yeah, of legal yeah. element the old bills coming around yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're in your boxes just like I was wearing jeans up until really recently I promise yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the Coen brothers uh, mm. something that excites us both a great deal as we're both pretty big fans of theirs yeah i was saying to you earlier like i've seen most of their films more than once which is like puts me in good stead that's why i haven't written any notes actually uh, you feel <laughs> confident. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 no fair enough um so apologies in advance if i appear to sort of ramble a little bit um, <laughs> that's because i'm not reading off anything so no no i think i think it is good i think you're right it's a, obviously we did the, the friedkin episode before but i mean in terms of of all the directors that could have been picked out of the hat it's a good place to start Mm, familiar but with so much to them as as filmmakers the themes and ideas throughout their work and the way in which they've endeared themselves to so many I mean we were saying this before like there aren't many filmmakers that sort of eclipse the popularity of actors or at least feel like they're on the same level as actors but you know thinking about people like Spielberg and Tarantino for example yeah yeah I think whilst the Coen brothers probably aren't quite as popular as them i think they're quite sort of a recognizable duo in the world of film or indeed outside of the world of film Mm. yeah i I feel like it's if you mention their name to a group of people who aren't necessarily that into film they might you get a good few people still knowing who they are yeah 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 yeah. and who have seen seen at least like two or three of their films yes yeah 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 they they have like a sort of popularity outside of sweaty film nerds basically yeah yeah um (laughs) So the way the discussion will go is we're gonna we'll talk obviously about the themes and ideas in their filmography, chiefly through the lens of how the Coen brothers utilise their lead characters. That says a lot about them as filmmakers and the ideas that they've chased throughout their thirty year career, thirty plus year career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like late eighties, I think they started. Yeah, so. simple as late eighties. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll then rattle through a couple of our favourite examples of theirs. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, I imagine we'll probably talk about the majority of them as the discussion goes on. But for the sake of brevity, we didn't. We thought it best to maybe just pick a couple of films each to talk in a bit more detail about. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, nice. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Mm. Questing the cinematic void. Joel and Ethan Cohen. Yes, but oh, we're doing both of them. Yeah, both of them. Oh, God, okay. <laughs> I'll have a rethink. <laughs> yeah. When Dale suggested that he just put Ethan Cohen, and yeah, I just yeah. thought, uh, I, th- I think it's because he, is is it him that does most, he gets the director credit. <laughs> it's Joel. Is it Joel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Then. I don't know what the, what, what was, what's going on there with, with you there, Dale, but <laughs> it seemed unfair to pick one over the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's um, because of like academy reasons that they can't have like, 
they had to be an established duo for in like for the guild uh, the directors guild of america for them to be acknowledged as a uh, as like each other's kind of partner really strange so one of them had to produce so basically just put the producer label on although they're probably both doing an equal amount of each yeah right, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah strange that isn't it it is weird yeah yeah i guess to sort of kick things off it'd be interesting to talk about sort of how the coen brothers sort of fuse uh old school hollywood yeah okay with their sort of more modern sensibilities right okay yeah. um and then we'll move on to the discussion about lead characters and then of course a couple of our favorite films but first let's talk about the coens and that old school cinematic love lovely because it seems to me anyway and that a lot of their films, even films that aren't explicitly set in sort of classic Hollywood times, sort of the 40s. Yeah, right, um, okay. A lot of their films borrow a lot from mm. that era. Oh, massively. Not, yeah, not yeah. only the sort of like historical figures that were sort of most responsible for some of the greatest films of that era, yeah. but also things like um, you know, narrative stylings of the most popular genres. Mm, you know, yeah. westerns, for example, which oh, they lean particularly on, particularly westerns, yeah, and noir sure. films mm. as well. But I think westerns and noirs, and and actually the sort of screwball comedy caper films, yeah. So like intoler- intolerable cruelty, and yeah, like yeah, and, yeah, and even okay. like the Hudsucker proxy borrows from that quite a lot. You know, like yeah, yeah. You know, they seem to sort of use what arguably were the three most popular genres of the golden age of Hollywood mm, okay. as sort of like. It's a, framework, a foundation or framework yeah, yeah. would be better. Yeah. yeah, a framework for all of their films, even if the films aren't explicitly westerns or explicitly screwball comedies or explicitly uh, noir films. Mm, yeah, they do tend to sort of borrow from them quite a lot. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You got like, I mean, western. I think out of all of them, the western is. I mean, they've done a few overt westerns, but there's yeah. kind of sprinklings of it in Fargo as well, and also the way that conversations in their films can be drawn out for quite a long time yeah. and that's a, another very kind of classical Hollywood approach is just kind of letting scenes play out for like 8 to 10 minutes yeah, and yeah, have yeah. that that almost the conversation be a set piece yeah um, I think they do that really really brilliantly yes agreed mm. I think the, also the way they 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 shoot a lot of their films there's a lot of those those sort of like slow gliding tracking shots that you would see in classic Hollywood all the time yeah yeah the use of lighting I think is very evocative of classic Hollywood a lot of the sort of thematic stuff as well, and and the, mm. like, the, or perhaps a better way to say it would be like the the narrative stuff, you know, like borrowing so much from mm. them, so much, yeah, you yeah. know, like I want to talk about the Big Lebowski later on because okay. you know one of my two favorite Coen Brothers movies, yes, um, and and that's basically just like a sort of classic Hollywood noir film, mm, yeah, updated yeah. with the Coen Brothers sensibilities and yeah. their approach to humor. Mm. Uh, which is all, always sort of quite sort of dark and odd, oddly placed. Yeah, and it, it's it ties like, well with the violence, which is also something that they're pretty good at doing. Oh my, yeah, they're one of the some of the best, and the the kind of way that it's um, presented is is very matter of fact. Yeah, I think like um, especially in like. I'll talk about this more later on, but like Burn After Reading, remember when Brad Pitt gets shot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's out of nowhere, like yeah. just out of nowhere. And yeah, it's yeah. just, it's kind of like, it's just presented to you as a thing that happened. And it's all over like that. Like it doesn't draw anything out. There's no next to no use of like, they don't really like slow motion or anything like no. that. Like they're, they're, the way they employ things like camera work and that those kind of aesthetic things is very subtle. Mm. And, uh, and, difficult on a first viewing to kind of register mm. whereas like in stark contrast to someone like Zack Snyder who's like that's all you notice the first time yeah you know, like, yes yeah. yeah absolutely yeah there's something to be said as well about that sort of matter of fact way in which they would they cover you know even some of the more sort of outlandish what you would consider more outlandish sort of ideas in their films for example the use of the wood chipper in Fargo yeah yeah you know yeah. like I mean that's iconic now mm. and I think a part of that reason is because it isn't made such a big deal of no yeah in the narrative and the way the actors it's like not that obviously there isn't a sort of awareness that there isn't there is something sort of off kilter and odd about it but yeah. it doesn't feel forced no no and it's and it's very it's sort of deeply embedded in their dna as filmmakers and it never feels showy it lets you digest what's going on slowly so yeah. like there's no it, it doesn't crash zoom to it 
No. It, it's just it just cuts. It cuts and there's a guy shoving a guy's leg into a wood chipper, pushing it in really slowly, and it doesn't even the camera doesn't even move. Like he's just pushing it in there. Yeah. And you're like, what's going on there? Oh, oh Jesus! Like it takes a, you know, that it forces you to really, really like subjectively analyze what's going on. It's not and there's no, there's no moments of. Of, there's no real moment of shock. It, it's no. a slow burn of of a reveal of violence. Yeah. Um, and the same thing could be said for uh, that, that scene earlier on in Fargo as well. When um, I don't know if you remember it, when they kidnap uh, they kidnap her, right? So yeah, the yeah, two Steve yeah. Buscemi and the other chap. She's just watching telly, and it just cuts to like these French windows. And he's just got a crowbar and a, a ski mask on, and he's like trying to jimmy it open, and he's like, it's it's so normal. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. She can see him. She can see it happening, and she's she's kind of like the audience struggling to realize what's going on, and it's just like cut, 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 shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot. Like mm. that's just how they present violence and how they present a lot of things. It's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I think it also works well in injecting humor. That's yeah. those sort of darker sensibilities that we sort of touched upon earlier. That mm. you know, the, the simplicity in which they frame sort of some of the the sort of more outlandish moments or more violent moments in their film yeah. filmography, it gives it sort of comedic quality. Doesn't yeah, it? completely. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about sort of the way the Coen brothers utilize their lead characters, particularly lead male characters. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like a lot of the themes and ideas in the in the work of the Coen brothers tends to go through their lead characters yeah and they tend to you know the, the journeys that each of these characters go on tends to sort of underpin a lot of the wider themes and ideas and influences on their own work yeah okay yeah the majority of their films typically but not all but typically center on a male protagonist uh who is often a bit of a deadbeat or a loser yeah, so off the top of my head, you've got Inside Lewin Davis, you've got Big Lebowski, uh, you've got uh, Barton Fink. Yeah, you've got yeah. No, you're totally right. I mean, even No Country for Old Men, in in some respects. Oh, I agree. Yeah, like he's saying. kind of a bit of a failure in that. Yeah, he's not beginning. someone that's yeah living the life of Riley for lack of a better. No, term. yeah. You know I, mean? I mean, until he stumbles on a a truck full of heroin. Yes. <laughs> um, well, we're all waiting for it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. We all need our truck of heroin. Yeah. <laughs> they all tend to be characters, as you mentioned earlier, with in regards to um, Josh Berlin's character, No Country for Men. They're characters in, in varying states of not doing very well with themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, these are individuals who, uh, you know, by the metric of modern society, or indeed the society of the time in the films, and I don't think they've sort of, the expectations have changed much over the last 30 years, they're not doing well. They're not a success. No. They're individuals that, you know, go by unnoticed and or are sort of plagued by past mistakes. You know, these these men become sort of embroiled in a really sort of complex and difficult situation they yeah. can't get out of. Yes. And they can't understand themselves no. quite often. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. They might not sort of like unknowingly fall into these sort of like oppressive power structures or anything like that but they're also individuals that are trying to desperately hatch schemes to get them out of the situation they're in the yep. problems they're facing in their life the sort of glacial nature of their existence you know that they, they quickly hatch a scheme that's gonna throw them up the societal ladder far quicker yeah. than any other sort of like more uh, socially acceptable manner it's a quick it's always so. a quick fix isn't yeah, it yeah there's always Thinking a quick fix William yeah. H Macy's in particular yes. character in yeah, Fargo yeah. yeah he he is the epitome of everything you've just said <laughs> I think actually thinking about it and it and I think that sort of talks about this idea of how the sort of Coen brothers you know view the American dream in a way mm. this idea that you know like all of these characters want fame fortune and, and through that to be liked by people by revered by people who are in positions of dominance above them yeah so if you think about william h macy's character in fargo his partner's dad pours a lot of scorn on him yeah yeah and this is a man you know who is you know doing quite well for himself looking down on someone who isn't yes and yeah. judging all of the decisions that he's made yeah so on the basis of what society thinks or, or attributes as, as a successful lifestyle, mm. a lot of these characters are failures. Yeah, yeah, And the reason that they hatch these harebrained schemes to try and sort of, like, again, jump a few rungs up the social ladder or the societal ladder is because of that sort of 
frustration about the way in which people above them treat them. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting sort of, you know, it inspires them to sort of hire hitmen yeah, to, to, yeah. to, to kid, kidnap their wives. It or, feels weirdly justified when they're doing it as well. Like you, when you're watching them, you're not like, what are you doing? You're like, I kind of see where you're going with this. <laughs> you know I mean? Watch out, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not obviously like to that extent, but it is an extreme, but within the world they've created, you're like, that can't, that makes sense. Yes. Like, you know? Yeah, and it goes back to what we're saying about those off-kilter sensibilities of the Coen brothers is that, you know, they're taking like very real, you know, grievances with the socioeconomic system, I guess, if you yeah. will, for lack of a better term. I can't think of anything better. So. <laughs> um, it, it, it's never sort of like, preachy it's never sort of in your face i guess no in a way and that sort of sensibility and their sense of humor and their characterization you know it, it gives it a sort of a living breathing quality but mm. never at the expense of the enjoyment mm. of, the, of 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 their narratives yeah you're dead right with that kind of idea about the the american dream because if you have you ever listened to an interview with them too i have but Nothing where they've specifically said anything about that. So. They're very humble guys, by the by all accounts. Like they're not. You don't feel like they're overly proud of their work, and you don't feel like they sort of suffer from ego that much. And I think that is genuinely their worldview. Like they do, kind of reject the idea of climbing any sort of social or or professional ladder. I do think they really reject that. They're they're always so sort of soft spoken and very matter of fact. They almost when you when you hear them, it's like they're talking about a throwaway movie. Mm. It, it doesn't sound like they're talking about one of the best films of the 1990s, for example. Yeah, like it's yeah, always, yeah. And I do really think that, that one of their kind of core values is a rejection of, of that sort of American dream mm. uh, of climbing the ladder and getting to the top at the end in, in order to be able to look down on people who are younger than you or less accomplished. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. And it, it, that sort of ties in quite nicely to what I'm going to say now. Oh. <laughs> is that, you know, a lot of the characters who sort of concoct these harebrained schemes, harebrained schemes, you know, they tend to be sort of full of hubris. They might not necessarily be arrogant, uh, all of them. I mean, inside the Welland Davis, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm thinking, like, they also have delusions about about themselves mm. and what they feel like they deserve and what they need and they feel like they've already got the sort of tools to acquire it but the, but the reality is is that they don't mm. none yeah. of them do that's the, probably the strongest element about all of their films is that where the sort of strongest comedic elements in their films arise I think is yeah. in these characters integrating with these systems and these often very oppressive sort of power structures mm. to try and get what they want yeah. but lack the sort of skills or talents or the personality to do so. Mm. A lot of these people, as we said before, that they're, they're not the kind of people you expect having the balls to, to carry these things through. Yeah. And if you think about from the talent perspective, inside the Welland Davis, it's implied that he's just fine. Yeah, he's not, he's yeah. not like a bad singer. No. But he's not great either. Yeah. And he yeah. doesn't have that greatness to rise to the top mm. or justify his arrogance about feeling like he should be at the top. Yeah, no. You know? Yeah. And if you think about, again, we keep talking about Fargo, but I mean, you know, he thinks he deserves more. Yeah, more money from from his job, I guess, and like more, yeah, more acknowledgement and from more his financial stepfather, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's obviously not a great savvy businessman. He's <laughs> no. not someone that's going to walk in a room and turn heads. He no. lacks charisma. Yeah. And that's why he has to bring other people in to do the job for him. And that's where the sort of like... Where, where things start to break down because the more people you involve, the more sort of difficult and in the case of Fargo, hilariously complex it becomes. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's something really interesting about that in terms of the characterization of these sort of leading men is that so many of them are just completely incapable of dealing with the lot they've been given. Yeah. And are then even more incapable of finding a way out of it. Yeah. Um, because they lack the sort of the tools in which to do so yeah pretty much every character in burn after readings like that they're they're all kind of stupid in in one way or another to and that ultimately sort of leads to their downfall and they all think that they're better than they actually are they all think that the world is revolving around them and it's really interesting the way that film's structured in in that it's a kind of ensemble because yes, the, the yeah. film isn't revolving around any of them and you kind of like there's this fragmented narrative going on which ties all together but it's all based on their own sort of 
idiocy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, again, I'll talk about it more later, but it's uh, uh, one to watch if you haven't seen it. There's a sort of the fighting's a sort of a sense of determinism, aren't they? Yes, I think a lot of these characters in sort of burn after reading across a lot of his filmography. You know, with possibly the the um, the only film being separate from that is the Big Lebowski, which I'm going to sort of t- touch on more later on. But aside from the dude, most of his sort of male characters, you know, I think their sort of fate is already written. It's already set. Yeah, yeah, and they're not. Again, they, they they just lack the ability to be happy with that, mm. and and always wanting more. And I just think there's something quite sad about that when you when you frame it against the sort of, I feel like the wider thematic intent through lots of the Coen brothers' work about the idea of the American dream and what that really means. You know, it's mm. about you know, you're, you're judged on your fiscal success, yes, more than anything else, yeah. Uh, and your rank in society as well. Yes, uh, as a result, usually as a result of having money, like yeah, you get to hang yeah. out with the the bourgeoisie, right? The, oh, yeah, yeah. Mr. Marx, <laughs> take that off the word of the day list. <laughs> um, but no, I think you're right, and it, and it inspires these characters to to do something about it, but they mm. just go about it in the worst way possible. Yeah, they're all yeah. they are all like in like stupid, and that's like that's quite an abrasive term, but I do think in the context of the Coens, it's it's justified. Yeah, because it, it, they are all stupid. But yeah, yeah, not yeah. like, but in one way or another, they could be really clever in one in one way, like whether that be physically or they could be really good at something. But they're never complete. <laughs> no, yeah, they're not adaptable to the scenarios that they throw themselves in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, even like the sort of more charismatic characters, because there are some quite charismatic leads in Coen Brothers films. I'm thinking like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, George Clooney's character is pretty charismatic, uh, and Nick Cage in Raising Arizona. Oh mate! Oh god! I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, like these yeah. are characters that sort of have a bit more about them, mm. but even that, even then, it's sort of artifice, and it's yeah. still, it's still sort of masquerading a sort of ineptitude that yeah. is eventually going to bite them on the ass. Well, like Ballad of Buster, Buster Scruggs, which is what I watched last night. Have you seen that? I have. Yes. Do you remember the first ten minutes when Scruggs is like still alive? Yeah, yeah. He's so charismatic. And he he's like kind of almost comedically good at what he does, which is this kind of being this kind of like heightened Western gunslinger. But mm. then even like like you say, even then like he he it, that that is ultimately his downfall. He just gets shot in the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and the film then becomes about something else. Yeah, <laughs> which it just is moves crazy. on, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Um, let's go into a couple of films things. I feel like we can thread these because I feel like a lot of his films. A lot of their films, sorry, mm. uh, embody a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll start by. I know we've mentioned this quite a lot already, but I do really want to talk about Fargo because it's yeah. like in my top ten, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. One of okay. the top ten films, uh, which do they do that does shift like over time? Of course. Yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah. Um, at the moment, I hate that question. People say when you know when they say <sighs> yeah. what what do you like or what did you study or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. such a sort of, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge people for asking it. I just hate answering it because you're in a situation where, particularly if you're talking to people that you know aren't that into film, yeah. you don't want to say like some obscure French film, even though you love it. Yeah, because you're like a twat. I always you go, I mean? yeah, no, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I um, I, I I struggle with that question, like because, like I say, the next day it could be something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't really have one, but Fargo is almost consistently in there. Yeah, um, I mean that's an absolutely fair shout. It's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, I just think it's like a modern fairy tale. It's one of the best told fairy tales. I think that mm. is set like like the Coens are really good at. Like they're good at taking a very classically structured narrative and placing it in a modern context, mm. and re- but it retains the magic, which is why that narrative structure was so popular in the first place yeah 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 in the case of Fargo it's got every it's got it's the cautionary tale first and foremost like Mm -hmm. with William H Macy's character and like what he goes through and also it's got possibly one of my favourite ever ever characters Marge Margie Gunderson oh yeah who's just the lovely yeah she's the loveliest woman (laughs) Um, and they do play up that kind of Minnesota nice accent which Mm. apparently is actually not really how people talk from Minnesota okay Um, but it is just employed in such a wonderful fashion and this woman almost gets thrust into a Cohen-esque narrative without without conceding to it right so she she she's 
just wrapped in this web, this bizarre web of like kind of crime, caperish nonsense. To her, it's clearly nonsense. It's like another day on the job for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the way she reacts to that is like gold. It's really funny. She's totally totally yeah. unflappable, isn't she? Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. But still somehow is so agreeable uh, to kind of hang out with, with for like an hour and yeah, a half. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's pregnant as well, which I think adds to it somehow. And she's got this husband who is, by all accounts, just as like nice as she is. And he works for the the company that do the art for stamps. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like a police officer embroiled in this murder, like this kind of kidnapping murder suitcase full of money story. And he he's that, that, but they exist in this kind of symbiotic way, which is just so wicked and so mm. unique. Um, there's a great scene as well, which is kind of out of nowhere. It's a real character moment for Margie. Margie. Um, it, she just see, goes to see an old friend. They go to the city. Oh yeah, and it's this guy who is clearly he's clearly like recently divorced or something, mm. and the way she handles so the the scenario is is she just meets up with him because he's like an old school friend or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, she, yeah. yeah, she doesn't think anything of it, and it, he he kind of starts to break down and, and reveal that like he's kind of divorced and is in like a he's re- like ridiculously lonely and clearly has a bit of a soft spot for her mm. and like wants to take it further and he's really pushing for it and the way she reacts is like despite the fact this was like this is 96 Fargo like the mm. way she reacts is so like I don't know I mean I'm not a woman <laughs> but it seems like quite empowering and like very like no like really firm but retaining her sort of her personality and not having to get aggressive or anything mm. I think she's yeah that's just such a great little throwaway moment um, well yeah it's yeah. just it's a part of the film I, I've just not even thought about since I last saw the movie <laughs> yeah. but it's an interesting point and I think it it, it sort of combines with what we were talking about earlier about these characters all having lofty ambitions and suffering for it mm. you know Margie's lifestyle and the way she lives this sort of sedate quiet life with a loving husband yeah yeah talk you know that is almost a dream yeah it's, yeah it's yeah sort of like the antithesis of what all every other leading sort of coen brothers character bar yeah. the dude yeah. you know really wants yeah yeah you know and i think there's something to be said about just 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 like leading a pure honest life the best mm. you can yeah yeah and not sort of allowing yourself to be besieged by these sort of like societal expectations which can influence people to do bad things yeah yeah um yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I didn't actually think about it in that way either. That there's a great moment at the end where she's just talking. She, the wood chipper scene's just happened. She's yeah. got the two criminals in the back of her car, and it, it it's not a very sad film, but it's a really sweet, somber moment where like she's just basically telling them off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's yeah. like, "Here you are, like here you are in my car, in the back of my car, and look out, like it's a beautiful day. Like what have you done? You know." Mm. She's sort of trying to employ her very soft sedate lifestyle um just tell them like how good it is i guess yeah yeah <laughs> um, to sort of appreciate the simple things and and, and the, the beauty of the simple things yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just like yeah it's a wonderful, wonderful movie i mean i haven't mm. seen it in quite some time but it goes back to what you're saying earlier about the endless rewatchability of the coens i think mm. that is definitely up there as one of their most rewatchable movies oh yeah, yeah it is yeah. Yeah. alongside probably the big lebowski i'd argue those two are their most rewatchable films oh yeah yeah i'd agree, um, I'd agree and it's interesting that. i'd like to just pick up that point of what you're saying about the sort of the sort of um not well it is fable like but you said a fairy tale a fairy tale yeah a lot of sort of film academics when they talk about the coen brothers they talk about this idea of of the sort of the greek tragedy yes and, yeah uh, and and the or the shakespearean tragedy and and the theme that sort of threads through both of those sort of ideas is that you know again it's about it's about hubris and about, yeah and, mm. and, and that you're punished for it and it's like a learning experience. Your punishment is like a learning. You know, you're, yeah. you, know it's, you learn from it. As an audience member, you're supposed to think, "Huh, you know, yeah, I don't. I, arrogance is a bad thing. You yeah, know, and it can lead me to do bad things. You know, very, very fairy tale like. Yeah, again, like yeah, cautionary, into, yeah, like, like exactly. cautionary tales. Is like you can't if you if if you fall down this trap. In the case of actual fairy tales, it's quite often like a a weary traveller getting led astray by a yeah. light or something. Yeah, but it's yeah. the same idea, but it's just you know in feature length form, and <laughs> and it's sort of siphoned through the Coen brothers' ability to sort of really get to the sort of nitty gritty of the sort of 
yeah the, the, the worst kind of most reprehensible sort of behaviors that can come as a result of it yeah especially in america like, yeah, yeah. And it, it, i like it because it, it's not sort of the fairy tale is embedded in in the darkness of the era and of the time mm, yeah and there is levity in the humor but there is you know if you think about the you know fargo Really, if you strip the humour away, it's a pretty fucking horrible story. Oh, yeah. Really. Uh, like, the soundtrack is a good indicator of, like, the tone of the movie. Like, it's very... It's so sort of drab. Yeah. <laughs> but but also weirdly epic at the same time. There's yeah, a, like, yeah, yeah. a kind of... I'm not sure what the... It's like a wood instrument or something. It sounds quite unusual. I think Carter Burwell does all their song, all their oh, soundtrack. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, and it's yeah. like a drone that builds slowly and slowly and slowly and, and turns into... What simultaneously is like a really epic orchestral moment, but also that it retains that kind of almost gritty nastiness. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to hum it or anything, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Google it. It's good, good soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I need to, I need to revisit the film. I'll say I need to revisit the soundtrack, but I probably should just watch the film. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do love a good soundtrack. Yeah. No, great choice. Thank great, you. Great movie. And, yeah, um, yeah. Could talk about that for years. Oh, yeah. Fargo. I want to talk about... So the two films I've picked are probably... I think they're my two favourite Coen Brothers films. And mm. uh, the first one I want to talk about is Barton Fink. Nice. Yeah, okay. Um, As a sort of... You're more of a screenwriter, I think, than I am. Like I never kind of did it at uni or anything, so you, that is that makes a lot of sense to me that you uh, okay. have an appreciation for Barton Fink. Yeah, I mean, I just think... I mean, if you think about the sort of how the film the idea for the film came about it, it exists purely because of writer's block okay so yeah, Joel yeah. and Ethan Coen were writing Blood Simple at the time which yeah. is, again is another excellent film another excellent addition to their filmography and they were having a, a, an immense bout of writer's block and they just couldn't figure their way out of whatever it was they were writing for mm. Miller's Crossing so they leave that script go to New York for three weeks and in three weeks they write the script for That's Barton cr- Fink that is crazy so if you think about the themes and ideas of Barton Fink uh, and about the sort of insular nature of the writer mm, and the yeah. writer's journey as a creative and and the sort of internal conflicts they have, it really sort of has that... Ed- the, the themes have a sort of added weight, knowing that the people that wrote it yeah. were, were writing it only as a way to get out of writer's block. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? Which I, think, I just think that's lovely. I think that's a really interesting... It's also I just can't imagine doing that. Like, no, being no. like, oh, let's go and write another movie. Leave this for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the the solution to having a problem with writing is to write. What <laughs> um, that will never make any sense to me. But um, and I do love by. I think I, I think I think um, what one scene that's I'll sort of let you crack on in a second. No, sorry, no, go but, for it. Um, the moment where the motel that he stays at a motel or a mm. hotel, it just and John Goodman comes in and and it starts burning down. Yeah, yeah. That it there's like a transition there into like um, almost magical realism. Yeah. All of a sudden, that's yeah. really catches. Remember, it caught me massively off guard. But from then on in, the film strays into a sort of I'm going to say the word meta sort <laughs> of realm that it previously was only touching on slightly yeah i mean mean, this is the first film that roger deakins worked with the coens on really yeah right yeah so he obviously is is you know the film is set in 1930s oh the 40s sorry it's on the eve of america joining the second world war right okay so again classic hollywood yeah yeah uh very literally this time but Mm, what i love a lot about it in terms of the cinematic approach from deakins is that the use of those classic sort of camera moves mm. the sort of sepia tobacco-y brownie sort of <laughs> colour palette yeah yeah and whilst that sort of pays homage to the era the style of the era indeed you know to the characters themselves who are representations of key figures in, in Hollywood at the time yeah yeah um, it also supplements the sort of more surreal elements of the movie uh, that yeah. grow in intensity and as you say right up to the point where uh, John Goodman sets fire to the to the hotel yeah you know and it, it sort of supplements that but also it's also like an effective tool to understand the internal conflict of the creative process mm. or as a writer and if you think about it in the context of the 1940s, you know, the studio system was, it was sort of famed for recruiting playwrights. Okay. So, you know, yeah, obviously yeah. there were a lot of playwrights, many of whom were very socially conscious, mm. playwrights who were writing stories about the sort of ills and failings of society. Yeah. And they could do that in theatre because theatre was not 
as a big money a business as the film industry is or was. No. And more malleable as well. You could change it night after night, right? Exactly, yeah. 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 As the times changed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, Hollywood bring these these sort of screenwriters in or playwrights and then get them to write scripts. And this happens to the lead character, Barton Fink. He's like a acclaimed, successful uh, playwright with a with a you know who wants to write stories for the common man you know yeah um that's right yeah. and he gets to hollywood and he's writing a wrestling picture <laughs> and the sort of rhetoric from you know the hollywood top brass is you know we don't do socially conscious we do entertainment pictures yeah yeah because the thought process is, is that entertainment equals more money yeah yeah so one of the central conflicts of the film is you know art as create as a creative practice and it enriches both the artist and the and the yeah. its audience yeah, yeah or as commerce as a, mm. as a as a as a way of making a living or as a way of making money mm. and it's interesting that in the case of Barton Fink's character because he's not really interested in making a great deal of money yeah yeah uh, but then this brings like an art you know an argument to him as a creative like am i writing something good that's actually going to be this e- epoch shattering piece of work that's going to leave its mark on history mm-hmm. and it's going to be like a something that many people can sort of take from and learn from and develop from as good art in his mind should be yeah or is it just going to be another throwaway movie that a lot of people go to watch and then that's it you yeah, know like yeah. there isn't a great deal of interaction and i think it's a really interesting thing to pick up on, particularly in that era, as I think Hollywood was infamous for that, for mm. sort of taking a lot of like creative people. Not that Hollywood couldn't do that, and it definitely did, mm. but it was through the lens of always want, always needing to make money. Yeah. So filmmakers and writers had to be a lot smarter about the way that they implemented their socially conscious stylings or musings, if you like, right in yeah. these narratives. And I just think it's that's like a really fascinating thing for me anyway you know when you're stepping away from the film but in the context of the film it really embodies that conflict really well yeah yeah you know because writing is lonely it is really lonely mm. i mean not, not i'm talking as a professional i mean anything i've written <laughs> just sits in a drawer you know but you know like it is lonely and you're sort of besieged by sort of like your own psyche or your own your own sort of thoughts about how good or not good something is and how your opinion can change when you come back to it Mm. and just to have that additional layer of that conflict between chasing what it is you actually want to do or making someone a lot of money i know it gives the film a sort of really sort of sort of tense and almost sort of nightmarish quality yeah oh yeah i agree with the nightmare and that sort of nightmarish thing it it is really insular film as well and particularly as the as it draws to its cl- like conclusion when uh, or as the aforementioned fire happens and yeah. that thing with the wallpaper like is it I, petroleum is he been like did he put does he put petroleum he puts, into, yeah yeah like vaseline or something yeah behind, yeah some flam- yeah yeah um and then the painting as well that is it the painting or a picture of someone on a beach yeah yeah, yeah that's kind of a motif and he arrives on that beach at the end doesn't yeah he? yeah um no, I didn't. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen Barton Fink, but it's very apt that clearly the Coens had had a sort of modicum of success with Blood Simple, uh, would would developing Mid- Miller's Crossing, and probably had a lot of these anxieties themselves of just mm. like, okay, well, yeah, we're, we're yeah. making, we we're we're kind of now obligated to because the studio is going to give us a lot, lot more money to mm. make something. Like, how do we? Use the constraints that are going to be given to us as as a as a means to actually make our like keep our thoughts and ideas into the kind of weave them into an, the narrative, but in a mo- maybe in a much more subtle way. So then we can deliver a film that is commercial, but also retains our creative ideas. Yeah, um, yeah. The, I think it's the great battle any sort of fledging filmmaker must have you know Mm. because i think we talk about it quite a lot i mean we're sort of moving a little bit away from barton fink but you know we we, i think we've mentioned chloe zao several times on the podcast as as an example yes yeah you know like filmmakers like her who you know or david lynch before her again i think we've mentioned them both in this same breath yeah june and eternals yeah respectively yeah yeah. you know it must be really difficult you know because obviously you want to work in industry and you want to keep making the things you want to make but Mm. it's really difficult to make those kinds of films and make that don't make a great deal of money for studios and studios still have the make them still have enthusiasm for your work yeah, yeah. to sort of fund you mm. and give you the money you need to keep working yeah so these filmmakers go and make these big movies yeah 
they're sort of in a bind, aren't they? And and I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think if you think about someone like I think someone that's done it really well would be someone like Rick, Richard Linklater. Yes, you yes. know, like I mean, not every one of his films has been amazing, the studio films, but you know that one for him, one for you sort of attitude. I mm. think he's still quite good in the choices that he makes in terms of the one for them. You yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. Fucking School of Rock, man. I mean, that's like a yeah. you know just a lovely film, even if yeah. it is a film that he probably wouldn't have made had he not sort of needed to. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I think it's really interesting, and I think. You know, bringing it back to, to, to Barton Fink, I think that sort of argument, that internal argument as, as to the worth of work when it is sort of, you know, designed more to make money, it's a really interesting debate. And I think it's something that, that st- still rages now. I mean, we talked about that in the context of Barbie in one of our, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. ourselves. But, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, having a critical viewpoint on something, but from, you know, the position of a, a sort of billion-dollar film franchise, you know, it's... <laughs> it's not necessarily something that should be laid squarely and just at the feet of people like Greta Gerwig, but it it does temper the critical edge of of, of a film. Yeah, um, I don't know. So I feel like we're sort of I'm going a bit off on one here. No, no, no. Um, it is it is what Bob thinks about though. Uh, yeah, and also I I remember distinctly thinking John Goodman ended up being the devil. Right. <laughs> is that okay. is that true or is that me misremembering? Um. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could view it that way in some ways. I, I remember the the kind of sheer force of evil that he became. Yeah, yeah. Being like, sort of, it got a bit biblical towards yeah, the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I didn't expect because, um, I mean, the poster is just John, is it John Tutoro? Yeah, no, John yeah. Tutoro. John yeah. Tutoro, yeah. John Tutoro of Transformers. <laughs> um, <laughs> him, him just looking worried on the poster. And I thought, right, I'm in for an hour and a half of like quite a... Quite a soft film. Yeah, <laughs> I was, yeah. What I was greeted with was anything but. Um, He's quite good at doing those kind of claustrophobic films. He did um, Fear X. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Which is okay. another film about sort of you know paranoia and mm. you know, sort of loneliness. Not necessarily about the creative process, but about something else. My brain escapes me what it is because like, that was like a, one of the first films that I watched of Refins After Drive when at university, and that was a long time ago. Oh, so. Okay, yeah, yeah. Got it on DVD though, so maybe I'll rewatch it. <laughs> um, yeah, he's brilliant in, yeah. in in this film. Very well cast. Oh, superb! He's permanently in a state of bafflement and anxiety, mm. and, that, and that never really goes away until he goes into his picture at the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like we spoke earlier on about that sort of those oppressive power structures. The Hollywood studio system is an oppressive power structure. Mm. You know, it's driven by staunchly by one singular ideology. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and the ideology is one of profit. Mm. Um, which ultimately is to the detriment of all art. If yeah. art is only for about making money, then it's only ever gonna, you know, it's, it's not. It's gonna sound a bit wanky, but it's it's never going to sort of impact you as much as something that, yeah, doesn't. You know, it's never gonna break new ground because by its very nature, the the idea of making money often stems from like market research and analysis, and that's just gonna be a watching movies that have already been made, right? Yeah, yeah. So. It's, it's, so there you go. Like, I mean, there's some, don't get me wrong, some great blockbusters, but, yeah. you know, I think in the context of this film, it's it's interesting to consider, mm. you know, how the, the sort of studio system is portrayed. And, I, and I'd not quite considered the idea that, obviously, the Coens would be very anxious about that on the basis of their <laughs> fledging filmmakers, that you know, and, yeah. you know, and there, there tends to be sort of like a, a real sense of excitement around, you know, all the filmmaker has to do now is make one really good movie. Yeah, and the yeah. excitement just bursts doesn't it oh man think yeah. about people like Ari Aster and Robert Eggers and, yeah yeah you know filmmakers that sort of burst onto the scene with folk horror and then everyone just got really excited about them and yeah. you know Eggers end up making The Northman which is a pretty big budget affair and mm. you can tell you can tell it's a big budget affair and you yeah. can, and, it, and it does you know it, it, it is different yeah yeah I, I think I still quite like The Northman but it is different you know it is different from his other films yeah. for sure like yeah it doesn't it, it lacks the edge of his other two and that's that's probably for for the aforementioned reasons, right? Yeah, you know. I guess the sort of thing to take from Barton Fink is, you know, is that the the battle between the creatives and the money men is always going to be there, and it's still here to to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Right, give us your film. I've uh, rabbited on enough. I've mentioned this already, but uh, I do want to talk about Burn After Reading um, because 
Funny story. I think I, I went to see like Iron Man three, uh, Iron Man two, or something with a mate from school. Okay, and uh, I didn't mind it. It's not great. Iron Man two is it? No. I went, came out of the film feeling pretty disappointed and a bit sort of almost dirty because because by that point I think I was like fifteen and I was like my interest in film had kind of like peaked a little bit and I was getting a little bit more into into films that were a bit more maybe a bit more hidden yeah and uh i bumped certainly into... for a 15 year old sort of kid right oh I mean, yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah. you know i think i'd seen fargo by that point for example and i was starting to explore like films that came out long before i was born for example mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i just watched iron man 2 and i was a bit like oh <laughs> um <laughs> and then i bumped into another mate of mine who just seen burn after reading <laughs> And he was so enthusiastic about it. He was like, it's the funniest film I've seen, like, I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, shit, okay. And he was, like, really, really, really just jazzed about this film. And I watched it, and I was like... So I started, I was like, why is it... Is this that funny? I'm not sure I'm getting this. I'm not sure this is... And that was the Coen's kind of off-kilter humour not landing with me quite as much as it did on like a second watch mm. it's such a good like i love burn after reading i think it's very a bit of an underrated cohen movie yeah, it's, it's, it's it's interesting you've picked it and i think it's good you've picked it because i think a lot of people would gravitate to the films that i've picked or uh, right, you know, yeah. other sort of you know your big lebowski's your, your fargo's your tragedy of macbeth tragedy of, <laughs> yeah like you know it, it's they did go through a sort of period in the sort of early 2000s to late 2000s where their work was a little bit more commercial. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. And I'm not saying that this film is especially commercialised, but it's sort of in that period, isn't it? And I think that might be why there's a bit of reticence to sort of consider it in yeah. in the pantheon of their best work. Yeah, I think, I mean, it has a... The cast is, you know, John Malkovich, George Clooney, Brad Pitt... Uh, Francis McDormand, like it's got a lot. There's a this cast is extraordinary, mm. uh, and you can tell that they're by this point, like they're household they are, names. Yeah, the household yeah. names, and yeah. they're more commercial. So there is an obligation, and I think they've mastered it by this point. This point, they didn't have that bar and think worry anymore. They were like, no, we're confident now. We can do this. Yeah, like, yeah, low yeah. Key confident. Um, it's so, but like it, the way they use those actors for a start is brilliant because, like, again, going back to what I was saying before, they're all kind of idiots and they're all really, really deeply flawed people, and they're all kind of like going through divorces and like sleeping with each other, and and they've all got their own scheme to better themselves. In the case of uh, George Clooney, it seems to be just sleeping with everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tilda Swinton is in it as well. Oh, um, yes. So he's yeah, having yeah. an affair with Tilda Swinton, who is married to John Malkovich's character. Uh, Francis McDormand wants to have this, like, expensive liposuction surgery. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Brad Pitt, Francis McDormand, no, they both find, like, this disc, which they think is, like, really covert, like, CIA documents that, like, they're they plan on <laughs> this sounds so stupid again saying in the, in the real world they plan on like blackmailing the government into giving them loads of money to give back this these files it turns out all that the disc is is like the memoirs of John Malkovich's character and so they're not like nobody cares about them anyway <laughs> um, yeah and it's just this whole like oh, it's almost like uh, it reminds me a little bit of like Much Ado About Nothing mm-hmm. whereas like there's this huge big grand tale of uh, where well, there's betrayal there, and there's like there's ultimately there's murder and things like that, but it's all based on literally nothing like it's yeah. all it's all just people misinterpreting things <laughs> yeah yeah and, and sort of creating narratives that aren't there yeah which I exactly. think is a really strong theme of a lot of their work oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah I mean even even like in No Country for Old Men he finds this big cache of drugs and he immediately is sh- there's an assumption there, isn't there, that like this is going to be his 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 big break, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, when it yeah, sort yeah. of isn't. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, and like, yeah, inside Lewin Davis, same situation as he thinks he's going to be the next big musician, whereas in reality, he's in he lives in a world where there are there are plenty <laughs> of mm. really talented musicians who are better or the same as him mm, um, yeah, yeah. so yeah it's the same thing yeah it's just people misinterpreting their own <laughs> sort of a misinterpretation fueled by sort of their own delusion yeah well. completely yeah, yeah yeah like Mal- even Malkovich who is the least stupid of all these people uh, you know he thinks that his memoirs is, is going to be his, his ticket out of 
recently getting sacked and stuff like yeah it's just a uh, if you like ensemble i think Cohen, the cohen's are really good at ensemble yeah, stuff yeah, as well yeah. uh it's like the best example of that i think mm. um also uh george clooney has a thing about flaws in the film which is like a really weird throwaway joke he goes he walks into a room and he's like oh these flaws are nice oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> just like, out of nowhere yeah, it, yeah. It, it has no bearing on the plot whatsoever but it's just really funny that <laughs> oh, these are nice flaws right? um yeah i love love that film and uh more people should maybe talk about it again because it came and went, I think. It definitely did. I think you're absolutely right with that. Yeah, I mean, even in my own mind, I mean, I didn't dislike the movie. I, mm. I quite enjoyed it, but I don't remember thinking this is like, yeah, this is Coen Brothers. This is like, yeah. yeah. So maybe, yeah, rewatch is required on that front as well. Yeah. After Fear X. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, uh, it was sort of their response to like the Bourne trilogy almost. Do you remember the the start of the film, which it, it starts as like a as like a satellite imagery? Oh god, yeah, it's the, quite a lofty beginning, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But then like, and so it it starts out like a kind of the Bourne supremacy or something. But then it, it <laughs> the the people that eventually zooms in are just like normal Americans. So mm. I feel like another just sort of funny kind of Cohen moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. that's great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anyway, sorry, I've uh, been talking about that film for far too long. No, that's, that's what we're here for. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> listeners are here for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope. I want to talk about The Big Lebowski. Okay. Um, yeah. Which I think, you know, is, is a pretty basic bitch film to sort of mention in, in, in the context of the Coen brothers. But I think the reason I, I love it so much is because I just love, a, I really love a, a good noir movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, one of my favourite genres. You know, classic Hollywood noirs are always something I'll gravitate towards. I'm no means, you know, an expert on them, but I, I love them dearly. Mm, yeah. Um, I think it's a genre that sort of best represents the sort of hidden darkness underneath the sort of pervasive, the pervasive American ideology at the time. Yeah. You know, family, wealth, God, all that sort of stuff. The trope I love most is the sort of narrative obscurification, you know, the, okay. the sort of the way it gives like the oppressive forces or the sort of criminal contingents are sort of omnipresent throughout the film. It mm. makes, makes things feel really claustrophobic and every movement of the character is being watched. And Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, sort of, they use the noir stylings in like the sort of Cold War paranoia thrillers of like the 70s, like Parallax View and yeah, All the President's okay. Men. You know what I mean? That that feeling of always being watched and, yeah. you know, that these these powers, are, they're going to get you and you don't know when. Yeah. And they're, ev- they're everywhere all the time, <laughs> you know. Um and I just love that. I think it's a real great narrative device um, for sort of speaking to this sort of the almost unknowable complexity of the world that we live in in the modern world, or, the, or you know, the America of then, and the America of you know the 60s, 70s, and the America of now. You know, yeah. and you were talking about this idea of these narratives that you create in your head. It almost supplements that as well. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you don't know how much of it is real, or how much <laughs> of it is in your own mind, yeah. or in the characters' minds, and. Mm. You know, I think that's what I, makes the noir you know, so interesting to me, both as classic Hollywood noir or the neo-noirs that would follow it. But in the sort of case of The Big Lebowski, like, obviously the noirish element is there. There's this sort of barrage of characters and their sort of shady machinations and all their sort of clandestine desires, and it all becomes a bit overbearing in the way the best noirs are. Yeah, but yeah. the stakes are comparatively so low. Yeah, Because yeah. all he wants is his rug back initially. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and... And I think that's such a refreshing way to take the noir, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm sort of paraphrasing, paraphrasing <laughs> the, 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 the Coens when I say this, but they wanted to make a film about nothing. Yes, you yeah. Know? And, and I think that really, you know, the noir is perfect for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's also, like, you know, we, we spoke about, you know, the hubris of, of their male characters is sort of representative of this desire to climb the ladder, which is almost like an illness that the system creates. Mm. In the case of the dude, that isn't the case at all. Like, yeah. he's, he, you know, it's an inversion of their tropes in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, he is just, you know, he's happy with his lot. He's happy just to sort of mill around, not work, bowl a bit get stoned and listen to records yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and again it talks about the idea of the simple life like you know yeah, like margie. margie yeah um although i think most people would probably think margie's life is a it's probably a better a bit more wholesome yeah, yeah. A bit more wholesome but similar you know i think yeah. there's something wholesome about the dude though and the dude's way of life oh yeah and the yeah, coen yeah. brothers make that they make that way of life seem worthy yeah like, yeah, like yeah. a worthy pursuit just not being 
dogged by these sort of this constant incessant desire to be improving yourself or being better mm, and yeah. just milling around yeah no he's yeah. he's got enough yeah which is quite rare for any character in a film isn't yeah, it? Like they yeah have enough like Margie has enough as well she's got everything she needs and she'll go and get more as and when she needs it uh, yeah I, I think I, it's been a really long time since I've seen The Big Lebowski I remember it having the worst DVD cover I've ever seen. <laughs> like it, it look, I mean, maybe that speaks to the, the the film's themes a little bit of you know not really because it's it's not about it, it's very sort of anti-commercial in that sense. <laughs> the case, the DVD case is shit. It's really it's just bad. those two on the front and the and the toe and there's a toe in yeah. it. Yeah, and, and the like, green letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it's a bit still it's got a it product of its time, I think. Maybe. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I think that what the, the oppressive force that comes to uh, the dude though is, is is in the way that people view his existence yes yeah so like you know in the same way that the, these people who are trying their best to climb the ladder and failing are judged mm. the people that don't try are judged too <laughs> yeah yeah so like it, it's almost like reminiscent of this sort of you know the battles between you know the old school hippies and the sort of conservative ideology of America at the time. Yeah, know? yeah. And it, it's interesting that the dude is obviously just like an old school hippie. Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> it sort of feels sort of evo- you know evokes that sort of conflict between yeah. you know these old sort of ideals of you know work hard and you will achieve. Mm. You know, have a wife and kids because you know that there's you know you won't know love like it. Love God as well. You won't know love love like God, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know he just completely eschews all of that he's not interested mm. but what's interesting about him is he's not particularly critical about people that are though well that's that, it that's yeah. what I like about it is mm. that in the face of all of this sort of you know judgement yeah. you know he, he's completely like nonplussed by it you know he you know he's just not on that level but he doesn't judge people that are yeah yeah I think he he's sort of the only conflict he really has with anyone is his confusion over why these people can't just let him exist um, they sort of refuse to just let him do his thing, and that's yeah. the only thing like that he reacts to, and he doesn't even react to it in any kind of violent sense. He's just like, oh, what? <laughs> that's his whole that's his whole mantra, I suppose, isn't it? Yes, mm. I think where the sort of classic male characters in the Coen Brothers film reside more is in the supporting cast of Big Lebowski. Uh, yeah, okay. So John Goodman and Steve Buscemi, yeah, both yeah. play these kind of characters that very much embody the different sides of the Cohen characterization of sort of um, mm. their male characters. You know, you've got Steve Buscemi's character who is just this clearly quite a nice, likable guy, but he's just perpetually ignored by everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and eventually ends up dying in a really sort of like oh, tragic, but yeah. particularly like sort of like throwaway banner, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's like obviously the great scene with, with the urn and yeah, the ashes. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, brilliant. So good. And then you've got John Goodman's Vietnam veteran who can only really interrogate the world through aggression and violence. Yeah, yeah. So he's obviously, obviously he's probably a product of some kind of trauma, but at the same time, he's, to his mind, the only way you get what you want from people is by being aggressive. Yeah, yeah. So those, you know, they're still there, Mm. but they're sort of relegated to side characters and characters that almost make, probably with the exception of Steve Buscemi's character, you know, the dude's quest, they sort of make it harder. Yeah. (laughs) He's sort of happy to have them around, though, as well, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he likes them. You know, he's yeah. obviously friends with them, and they're <laughs> friends with him. There's there's something to be said about that sort of non-judgmental, non-committal attitude, just mm. sort of coasting through life. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people are more captivated with it than they would admit. Yeah, you yeah. know, I'm thinking about the sort of inherent vice, um, the scene with Josh Brolin's character uh, when he eats all the weed. Oh yeah, yeah. It's almost yeah. like he's sick <laughs> of playing this clean shirt sort of symbol of the government or the law yeah, yeah. And he just wants to fucking cut loose and just sort of <laughs> yeah. surrender this sort of you know he's buckling under the weight of the expectations that he have, that he's been given mm. I don't know like I feel like that film would work quite well as a double bill actually it's, um, odd, it's odd because I was thinking about another PTA film in that context of uh, of Punch Drunk Love Oh God! And okay. Being, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why, but something about when you said about the rug, and it, there's something to be said there about. I mean, obviously, Sandler's character in that film is vastly different. He's played with a lot of anxiety, but the way he views the world after he meets Emily Watson's character, like the way he views the world, becomes a little bit more sedate, and uh, and the way he reacts to things changes almost to the same extent. Like when, like he's so confused about the mattress 
stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's the same kind of idea about like you know the rug and the mattress. Also set in suburb. Both are sort of set in the same kind of place. I think is it mm. Southern California, like that kind of low yeah. roof. No one has stair. No one seems to have stairs. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I don't know why that. No, I think it's interesting you mention it because I remember when we were talking about Asteroid City, we sort of we were talking about that sort of new age of American filmmakers who were attacking a lot of sort of issues with this sort of postmodern approach mm. and and having a sort of like off kilter sensibilities and utilizing you know um, the past yeah. as like an effective tool to interrogate the present and all that sort of stuff, all those themes and ideas. And I think the Coen Brothers are as much a part of that as anyone else. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they sort of flirt with it. I don't think there was consistently in it, but they're def- you know, I think some of their more straight-laced genre work is definitely a departure from that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, like, so good at just using, as we said right at the beginning of this episode, you know, classic Hollywood narrative tropes. And here it's just the, the noir. Once, you know, was just a, the byproduct of a, of a Hollywood machine that was obsessed with money, yeah. used to critique that those sort of same systems. I don't mm. know, I... I really, really love The Big Lebowski and it's great. Like, since we pulled the Coen brothers from the hat, it's made me think about these films again for the first time in a long time. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting what you said about when you were 15 and you were just starting to explore movies properly beyond the sort of confines of what you're given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Coen brothers, to me and to many of the people I remember speaking to on our film course back when we were at uni, yeah. the Coen brothers seemed to be one of the first directors that you fall on yeah oh yeah for that reason absolutely yeah no and it it does go back to like that that cinema trip was like a big point for me of thinking like right i need to start going to see these guys films Mm, (laughs) right yeah because i think that i think it's more interesting and just i remember thinking distinctly like i want to be the person going to watch these films instead because like someone i know from school is so like he was so jazzed by it yeah whereas i should have been the one because i just been to see like Iron Man 2 <laughs> I think it was Iron Man 2 anyway like I should be the one coming out ecstatic and like full of beans but I wasn't I was like a bit drab and disappointed so yeah no big big turning point and um, uh, it's good to make yeah. me, it sort of made me think about these films in, with almost sort of with fresh eyes because not that I ever disregarded the Coen brothers because I, I, I adore them but the, you know when they are like the first sort of cluster of directors that you start really getting into and you start really getting into films mm. it feels so early in your journey yeah and then you you know do you know what I mean and then yeah, you sort yeah. of like you look back on it and think oh my god the, these guys are amazing and and you know, yeah, and yet I sort of forgot about them and like when I talk about films that I love you know yeah. in a broader sense but absolutely fantastic directors and i mean that's not necessarily a sort of that's a pretty trite thing to say really but um yeah it's been really fun talking about a few of their films yeah definitely yeah no and i also think it's quite easy to stumble on their influences as well and visit who they were clearly influenced by like so big lebowski obviously if you if you like it that much you can go back and watch the big sleep right which yeah, is sort of yeah. a, a big yeah. a obvious homage in the title there yeah yeah uh, yeah, it's a yeah really exactly. similar yeah. film yeah like but, the raymond chandler thing right like, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 absolutely um and no yeah wonderful oh good 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 chatting about those good chat good good movies good good we usually do this in the outro yeah no we do <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've just jumped the gun haven't we yeah, yeah. should we go there now yes good questing the cinematic there we have it then then there we have it then. uh yeah as mentioned towards the closing moments of our discussion brilliant to talk about those two fellas big fans but let's move on yeah before ben gets his dirty little fingers in the la cruze pot i did say hat before i couldn't find the hat i don't know where that's gone um and extract the next scrap of paper with the director which will yeah. be the subject of our next deep dive we figure it would be best to mention the, f- the film we're going to cover next yes because i think it's, we're going to go back to a, a, a new release we are the first yeah. time in a while which would be quite nice actually yeah no it'd be um good. the equalizer three. yes the equalizer i was about to say the equalizer 2 that came out some time ago <laughs> uh yeah the equalizer 3 uh personally i i don't remember seeing the first one but i really liked the second one quite yeah. a lot yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a great moment at the end it involves a kind of like shootout between two men amidst uh, like a sort of devastating hurricane yeah which is like right. really good action sequence so um looking forward to the third one actually. yeah yeah mm. i mean uh, you know it's a steady solid piece of act- modern action cinema you know? i think so and i mean c- good 
uh, to talk about Denzel as well and his career. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. In the context of, of the, this franchise and his sort of body of work. Yeah, Agreed. Could be good. And we can think of no one better mm. to have along for the ride with that than Lee Markham. Lee Markham. Back for the first time since the Canon Films episode. That's right, yeah. many moons ago. Mm. He's the one that actually broached the idea of doing this episode. Yeah. We didn't actually secure a date, so I'm just, no. just sort of assuming that he'll, that he'll come along. Yeah, we're, yeah, he, he, he better had. Yeah. We've said it now. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, we, we don't want to embarrass ourselves. We've committed it to, uh, to, to the podcast. So, it's a tightly run ship, as I'm sure you guys will agree. Yeah, Lee, keep all of next week free, please. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we find out who the next director for our deep dive is going to be? Let's do it. Yeah, cool, we're, yeah. we're going to go live. Just uh, checking the connection there. Here we are. Well, well, well. Uh, so, uh, for those that are listening, we've just gone live on our Instagram. Yeah, yeah. As we're about to do the drawing of uh, another director for our director deep dive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we've got we've got our first. Uh, we've got to shout this out now. Yeah, yeah. Gav, hello, mate. Hello. So, um, without further ado, should we? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Should we do it? Do you want to give him a little stir? Yeah. And then- by the way, if you do have any other films that you'd like to, or sorry, directors you'd like to recommend, you can always drop us a message at any point and we'll chuck them in the bowl. Absolutely, yeah. Go on then. Right. We have got Jonathan Dem. Jonathan Dem. Oh, there we go. Nice. And that is uh, a suggestion from Alf. Alfie. Lovely. So thank you very much, Alfie. Uh, very much look forward to doing that. Yeah, good yeah. fun. Questing the cinematic void. There we go then, Jonathan Dem. I'd be interested to... Yeah. See, see, see how that goes. I can't remember a lot of his filmography, so I'm gonna have to in the next coming weeks. Gonna have to sort of dive deep into his mm. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sides of the Lambs obviously goes without saying. Yeah, watch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I can't really remember what much else. Uh, so he's definitely someone that sort of goes under the radar of American cinema, but in, mm. in the minds of a lot of his peers mm. and actors that worked with him, he's one of the greats, certainly of modern okay. cinema. So yeah, Perfect. really looking forward to, to discussing his body of work. First time doing it live as well, which is strange. Yeah, I sort of yeah. feel a bit naked doing that, especially as we're sat in my house, which is in the process of being renovated. <laughs> so it just looks like such a slapdash affair. <laughs> we do have quite big plans with the future of that, don't we? In yes. terms of the the, the the setting and stuff. Yeah, I'd um, like to get a like kind of proper sort of recording setup that we yeah. can kind of just as opposed to borrowing microphones and laptops from work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, still early days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all good. Yeah. A lot of things for you guys to look forward to and for us too. Mm. Uh, the anime episode, I know we keep, we have a tendency to mention episodes that we're doing and we don't do them for a while. Mm. That is secured for the week after. Lovely. So the lovely, the lovely Jordana will be coming in to talk about all things anime, mostly just films, because obviously this is a film podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, yeah, very much looking forward to that episode as well. Nice. So, yeah, lots to look forward to. In the meantime, enjoy this episode, and we'll be back for the next one. Nice one. See you later. Later. Bye. Bye-bye. Is it Dem? Did I say Jonathan Dem when yeah. it's Demi? I don't know. Just a quick correction for our uh, listeners. I said Jonathan Dem live on Instagram like an idiot. Uh, apparently it's Jonathan Demi, so there we go.